Well, we've been in our study of the doctrine of Scripture for some time now, and today we'll get to the clarity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Scripture was meant to be understood. This seems like an obvious statement, but to hear many supposed Bible teachers today, you'd think the Bible is a shadowy, cryptic maze of mystery and nuance leading to confusion, or at best, uncertainty. To some of these teachers with a mystical bent, the Bible is full of hidden meanings, meanings which can only be unlocked by these teachers. And maybe they can also unlock these meanings for you for a modest monthly donation. Some of you may remember a series we did in Sunday school years and years ago on ancient heresies. Who was here for the, that? Just the Pollocks and the Guineas, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's been a long time, and, and the Huggins. <clears throat> One of the first heresies we looked at was the Gnostics. Remember the Gnostics? It's the word uh, from the word gnosis, which means to know in Greek. And the Gnostics believed that there were a few special enlightened ones who could understand the mysteries of God. And everyone else was pretty hopeless in their search for truth. Others of a liberal bent nowadays believe that human language itself is too limited to express the truths of God. He is so high and we are so low, and there is an unbridgeable gap of communication. Trying to understand God is like a baby trying to understand a lecture on nuclear physics. It just can't be done. Some of you may remember... uh, recent movement that had something to say about clarity and certainty was the emergent church or the emerging church. <clears throat> and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning, and it's interesting because I, I taught this lesson 13, 14 years ago originally, and that was when the emergent church was just emerging, and now it's mostly in the past tense. So I, I changed my notes from present to past tense, but it, it's still around. The emerging church was strongly connected to the postmodern view of truth. And you could see their view of certainty by listening to the words they used. They talked about having conversations and dialogues, and they shied away from strong affirmations of truth. And when questioned about points of doctrine, they hemmed and hawed and acted uncomfortable and talked about how they didn't want to offend anyone. We still have that today, for sure. One of its most important and prominent teachers was Brian McLaren, who has written a number of books, one of them called A Generous Orthodoxy. And he said this, A generous orthodoxy, in contrast to the tense, narrow, controlling, or critical orthodoxies of so much of Christian history, doesn't take itself too seriously. It is humble. It doesn't claim too much. It admits it walks with a limp. And the subtitle to A Generous Orthodoxy is this, Why I Am a Missional, Evangelical, Post-Protestant, Liberal, Conservative, Mystical, Poetic, Biblical, Charismatic, Contemplative, Fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, Incarnational, Depressed yet Hopeful, Emergent, Unfinished Christian. I don't think he missed anything, did he? Just throw it all in there. He's everything to everyone, in in a bad sense. McLaren mentioned one of the overarching virtues considered a distinctive of the Emergent Church, and that is humility. If you say the Bible is certain of such and such, or the Bible plainly teaches this and that, they're coming out, that's coming out of pride. And they would not be so proud to say they are certain of things. <clears throat> the emerging church as a movement has largely gone away, and it's not surprising. On the one hand, you had people in the pews who needed solid food who have moved on to find a solid foundation. On the other hand, you have people who say, if you're teaching me that the search for truth and certainty is a waste of time, then why should I continue to waste my time listening to you? 
Or why should I waste my money reading your book if you're, all you're going to tell me is, I don't know anything. Now, there's a logic to that. What's the point of listening to sermons or reading books by people who boast about the fact that they're certain what they say, or not certain what they say is true? Over against these virtues that the Bible is difficult or impossible to understand is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. Scripture is comprehensible. God has spoken and spoken and spoken. And he has spoken precisely because he expects us to hear, learn, and obey. We don't speak to newborns expecting them to understand us. And why would God waste his breath speaking to us if we could not understand him? Theologians, as usual, have a fancy word to describe the clarity of Scripture. Perspicuous. Perspicuous. Anybody use that word today? In the last year, ten years? Probably not. You will see it in many systematic theologies. You'll see a section on the perspicuity of Scripture. And this is one of the fundamental rules of theology, or understanding. Why use a simple word like clear when you can use an impressive word like perspicuous? I've always thought it was ironic to use an obscure word to define clarity and an opaque word to describe transparency. But it's a term that's almost unused except in theological circles. The dictionary defines perspicuous as plain to the understanding, especially because of clarity and precision of presentation. Synonym, see clear. So just as I've said. So don't worry, now that I find perspicuous for you, I won't use it again. From here on out, we'll talk about the clarity of Scripture. Now, again, let's go back to a fundamental truth. If God has spoken, he is able to communicate in such a way as to be understood. And not only that, he demands that we listen and understand. Well, let's look at what the Word of God says about its own clarity. In fact, we can go back to the very first command of Scripture. You know this from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That's simple, it's direct, it's clear. It's a kind of command even a small child could understand, isn't it? Now Moses, later on in Deuteronomy verse 6, again, these are well-known words, Verses 6 and 7, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The things Moses told the Israelites were clear enough that he expected them to be able to teach their children to discuss them frequently. These words are not just for seminaries, for those with advanced degrees, who are even able to read, but even to the small ones, they were to teach the lessons of God's word. Let's look at the Psalms, Psalm 19. And we, again, we can go through many verses like this. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So God's testimony can take someone who's simple, who doesn't know very much, who isn't wise, and can make them wise. 
Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we could go through just about this whole psalm and show how God's word enlightens those who are perhaps not the smartest in the world. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The scripture helps those who are ignorant and wayward, and it couldn't do that if it wasn't clear. Look back just a few verses to verse 105, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the word illumines the way forward for all of us. And Jesus even rebukes those who should have seen the the clear meaning of Scripture. Look at Matthew 22. And he's speaking to men who should know better, men who were educated, men who knew the law, men who had studied the law for many years, and yet had come to some unbiblical conclusions. Matthew 22, verse 29 now remember that the Pharisees, Pharisee, sorry, Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Verse twenty-three, and they they have the, the, they ask this question of Jesus, but then Jesus answered and said to them, "You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God." Pretty straightforward, isn't it? They should have known the scriptures should have been understood by you. The power of God should have been understood by you, but you are mistaken. You didn't understand those things. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So these men who were so well educated should have noticed the tense of a single verb. The kind of things that you learn in elementary school. Present tense, past tense, and so forth. They should have known from the Old Testament, Exodus, when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Then that there would be a resurrection from the dead. Peter, Paul, James, John, Jude, all the New Testament writers, Old Testament writers, wrote expecting that they would be understood. Their books and letters weren't intended to be seminary textbooks. Look at Second Timothy three fifteen. Second Timothy. We often look at three sixteen, but three fifteen is also <clears throat> very important in our understanding of what the Word of God does. Second Timothy three verse fifteen. From childhood, again he's speaking to Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And that word translated childhood refers to a young child, a child who is old enough to understand the scriptures, not not a teenager, but somebody who is who's very little. Someone who can understand words, can understand God's word. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about the clarity of scripture. We often make a great mistake when we come to study the scriptures because we do not stop to remind ourselves of the type of people for whom they were written. It would have saved a lot of ink and a lot of trouble if everybody who became an expositor of St. Paul's epistles had reminded himself before he started expounding that the epistles were not written to students or to professors of doctrine at Oxford and Cambridge, but to slaves and to common ordinary people. 
Not many wise men, not many noble are called, said Paul, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. It was to such people that the epistles to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and so on were written. And it is because we forget this that we get into difficulties. When St. Paul wrote these epistles, he took it for granted that the people to whom he was writing would understand them. They did not have these learned professors to expound them. No, no. He was writing to them that he might teach them, and he knew that they would understand. These documents were written to people like ourselves, and we and they were meant to understand them. And Robert Raymond, in his Systematic Theology, says this, One does not need to be instructed by a preacher to learn that he must believe on Jesus in order to be saved from the penalty his sins deserve. That This includes the unbeliever, who is certainly capable of following an argument. All one needs to do in order to discover these things, to put it plainly, is to sit down in a fairly comfortable chair, open the Gospels, and with a good reading lamp, read the Gospels like you would read any other book. Now, historically, the Roman Catholic Church has rejected the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. You might remember the Council of Trent, and that was a Roman Catholic reaction to the Reformation. It said this, In order to restrain petulant spirits, the Council decrees that no one, relying on his own skill, shall, in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, wrestle the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold. So the understanding in this Roman Catholic view is that the the meaning of the, the word of God is to be held closely by the church and explained by the church, and no one is to, to discern it on their own, to say that it, this is God's word without the church's blessing on it. Also, the Council of Trent, remember this was, what, 1500s sometime, uh, required people to get special permission to have the Bible in their own language, and that was a, certainly a... Um, the point of disagreement between the, the Catholic Church and the, the Reformers. So to the Roman Catholic Church, the scriptures were up to the church to interpret and not for people to understand by themselves. The Protestant Reformers, on the other hand, emphasized the clarity of scripture. They believed that ordinary Christians, Christians should, could and should be able to understand the Bible. But very few could understand it in Hebrew or Greek or Latin. So the time of the Reformation was not coincidentally a time of many translation projects into many languages. The Reformers worked hard to make the Bible and biblical truth available to everyone, and this came along with an emphasis on teaching people to read for themselves. So when you see the Reformers come, you see translation work, you see, coincidentally, around this time we have the printing press some uh, decades before, but this allowed the wide distribution of God's word and many languages to many people. And if you have the Word of God in your hand, what do you want to learn to do? To read. And so we have this explosion of interest in the Word of God and the provision of the Word of God in your own language to be able to read that language. There were several important English translations made during the Reformation, such as Tyndale's translation of the Geneva Bible and the King James Version, of course. And Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, John Calvin published the first version of his Institutes in Latin, but he also produced a version in his native French. He wanted his fellow French speakers to be able to read the Institutes in their own language. Now, the authors of the Westminster Confession said this, 
those things in Scripture which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That is, just reading or hearing and thinking, meditating upon them. You can do that. You can, as an ordinary, unlearned person, without all the Hebrew and Greek and Latin, all the theological background, you can understand God's word enough to understand what God expects of you to be saved and to walk in faithfulness to him. So we've seen the testimony of Scripture itself and the testimony from history that the Bible is clear. And I spoke also in past weeks about the Bible's truthfulness. And if the Bible is true and so clear, then why doesn't everyone believe it? Why doesn't everyone believe the same things about the Bible? I could say one plus one equals two. That's true and clear, isn't it? But why don't as many people believe the Bible as believe that one plus one equals two? And God has clearly revealed his truth, but there are many reasons why people don't see it. First of all, let's be honest, not everything in Scripture is completely clear. We say the Bible is clear, Scripture is clear, but not everything is equally clear. In fact, the Confession says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Everything's not clear, and not everybody has the same understanding, the same clarity they see in God's Word. If you look at 2 Peter 3.16, we see even, even Peter recognizes this, this difficulty sometimes. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says this. He speaks, he's speaking of Paul. Paul is also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So Paul has things in his letters which are hard to understand. Do you ever read Paul and think, I don't understand you, Paul? We all do. Peter would agree with you. But it doesn't mean we don't try to understand them better. It requires effort to understand them, and not everyone is willing to devote that effort to it. There are also some things that Scripture touches on that are beyond human comprehension. Remember Paul, after a long discourse on the sovereignty of God, says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We can know something about God, but plumbing his depths is impossible for us. And I think this gets to where the the emergent church types say, we, we, we just can't know God because he's so big, we're just like babies at a nuclear physics lecture. And saying, oh, I, have, I have God all figured out. We, we can know as much as God teaches us in his word and just plumb the depths of those things, but know that, let's say you're exploring an ocean, you can, you can go in, you can <clears throat> get, your, get your snorkel and kind of look around and see what's going on, but to dive into the, the depths of God's being is more than we as humans can ever fully accomplish. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Paul certainly wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know about Christ. He wanted to know Christ personally as deeply as possible, but he knows that that's a never-ending task. That's a glorious never-ending task. Another issue that comes up with, this, with the issue of clarity is that our understanding can also be obscured by the distance of time, language, and culture. And we simply don't know what some parts of the Bible refer to. One example, you might have 
see in 1 Corinthians 15.29, Paul speaks of those who are baptized for the dead. And there are a number of interpretations of this phrase, but no one knows for sure what Paul means. But because of other scriptures, we know what it cannot mean. So if we don't know what it means, we know what it doesn't mean anyway. And it cannot mean that the people the people can be baptized on behalf of someone else to get them into the kingdom of God, as Mormons believe. Another verse I thought of on the way here this morning is Second or First sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two verse six. Second Thessalonians two six, talking about the distance of time, language, culture. Paul is speaking here of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, verse three who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul is in Thessalonica, talking to them about the end times, this man of lawlessness. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. So the Thessalonians knew what was restraining this man of lawlessness, but we don't. And we think, well, Paul, couldn't you just give us a hint? But he's writing to them. He, the, he, he knows they know what he's talking about, but we don't know. So if you go to a commentary, they'll say there are lots of ideas of who, what restrains the man of lawlessness now. But whatever it is, we can't say for sure what it is. So we've lost this little bit of information to history, to time. And that's okay. This keeps us on our toes, theologically speaking. Another thing we aren't sure of, this is a more minor thing, perhaps. Exodus 26, verse 14, says that a particular kind of animal skin was to be used for the covering of the tabernacle. Now, we know the Hebrew word, it's takash, but the NASB translates it as porpoise. King James says badger, pretty different animals, aren't they? ESV says goat skins. The original NIV says sea cow. Holman Christian Standard Bible says manatee. Others use the term dugong. You know what a dugong is? I had to remind myself. It's like a smaller version of a manatee. The American Standard Version says seal, and the new Revised Standard Version and others, I think they just sort of give up and call it fine leather because they don't know. And Revised NIV says durable leather, which is what you'd want if you're covering a tabernacle. And maybe someday someone will find a document that's now buried somewhere in the Middle East that will definitively settle what kind of animal this was but this issue is not one really of doctrinal importance. There are other animals in the Bible, for example. We're not sure exactly what they are. And there are some doctrines that are not spelled out as much uh, with, with as much completeness as we might like and still cause division within the church. This is So some doctrines aren't perfectly clear. And I often wonder if I can only spend a few hours putting some questions to the Apostle Paul, a lot of this can be cleared up. Like, end times or, or spiritual gifts or modes of baptism and so forth. Paul, just let me interview you, put, put you on my podcast. We'll talk about a few things. We'll get these squared away. And that, that, that would be helpful to the church to get these things figured out. But obviously we can't do that now. And besides the difficulties we might have understanding the Bible due to what we might call distance, there are more fundamental problems, not in the Bible, but in ourselves. There are ways even Christians can miss the Bible's clear meaning. One is inaction or laziness. R.C. Sproul confessed, by the way, speaking of past tense and present tense, when I wrote this before, he was alive. He's been dead now for a few years. So now I have R.C. Sproul here in the past tense. But he wrote this, I am sure that many of the errors I make in theology are due to my own slothfulness. 
I have not studied all parts of the Bible with equal diligence. I doubt if I have ever applied myself totally and completely to the careful mastery of the Bible. No, it is not a question that allows for doubt. Let me say it honestly. I have never applied myself totally to the careful mastery of the Bible. Unquote. Well, this is from a man who produced book after book and from barely understandable scholarly works on theology and philosophy to popular books on Christian doctrine to devotionals and to children's books. So, all sorts of levels he, he wrote to in his time. And for decades, he was studying, writing, publishing, and teaching, and yet he realized it was incomplete. And he continued, None of us is blameless in his or her diligence of study. Some are far more diligent than others, but none has done his or her homework perfectly. Not only sloth, but also pride affects our biblical interpretations. Pride breeds prejudice, and prejudice a kind of blindness to the teaching of the Scripture. It is not any accident that God has sent his Holy Spirit to illumine the text and to assist in applying it to our lives. We need this divine and supernatural help precisely because we bring our baggage of sin to the reading of the Bible. Pride and prejudice enter precisely because there are certain messages in the Bible we simply do not want to hear. The Bible is critical of us. It exposes those areas of our lives that are in conflict with God's law. So, we can miss the meaning because of inaction or laziness. We can also miss it due to frustration. That is, I've tried to understand the Bible, but it's too hard. I'd rather do something else. This is an important one. Distraction. Too many things to do. It may be worthless, shallow things. These shows aren't going to binge-watch themselves. Maybe even good things like helping others. But we can neglect the time necessary to understand God's word. Content to just sort of skip over it. If you have a question, just maybe leave it for another time and never get to that other time. Uh, there could be an issue with contradiction. That is, science or history or some expert on something or other says this, so the Bible can't possibly mean that. And some Christians sadly have held on to what science or history says instead of what God's Word says. And we also might miss the meaning due to distortion. Remember we saw earlier in Second Peter 3.16, says that there are things hard to understand in Paul's writings which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so these false teachers in Peter's day, these distorters of scripture, were not believers, but even Christians, if we're not careful, can fall prey to scriptural distortions. And finally, one way we can miss the Bible's clear meaning is tradition. And this is one of the biggest hindrances. Uh, you talk to somebody and about an issue in the theology, and they'll say, well, my pastor said this, or I learned this in Sunday school, or my church says this, my denomination says this. And so I can't possibly accept what this verse clearly says. And we're all subject to that, aren't we? We can all let our traditions define our theology instead of letting the Bible define our theology. So that's a problem believers have. Now, unbelievers have something else that prevents them from seeing the Bible truth clearly, it's that they are spiritually blind to these truths. Now, we know that some liberal scholars can actually be helpful. And many of them know the original languages. They know the history and culture of biblical times. They can plainly state what biblical writers meant, but they don't necessarily believe a word of it. And I have heard unbelievers clearly express doctrines of the faith. You remember a few weeks back, I quoted the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens. And he was confronting a woman who claimed to be a Christian minister, 
but had rejected most historical doctrines of Christianity. And this atheist said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by a sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not, or really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. It sounds a lot like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> this is first importance, that he, that Christ was, was crucified and buried and was raised again according to the scriptures. Hitchens knew that was the case for Christianity, for true Christians, and if you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. In one sense, Scripture was clear to Christopher Hitchens, but his heart was unable to believe. He understood the Christian doctrines, at least to a point, but he hates them. He rejects them. He thinks they're foolish and even dangerous and not worthy of modern people. Martin Luther talked of the outer and inner clarity of Scripture. Outer clarity is the understanding that ordinary people can have about the Bible, whether they believe it or not. Unbelievers can see the outer clarity of Scripture, but not the inner clarity. And for that, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is required. And we all need this illumination. Unbelievers and believers both. Listen to what Luther says. Nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Scriptures. All men have their hearts darkened, so that even when they can discuss and quote all that is in Scripture... They do not understand or really know any of it. The Spirit is needed for the understanding of all Scripture and every part of Scripture. We've talked several times about 1 Corinthians 2 in this study on the doctrine of Scripture. Let me read it again. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, down through verse 14. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know... that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the Spirit of God reveals God to us, but those who are unbelieving do not accept those things. They are foolishness to him, and they cannot understand them. He doesn't want to understand them. He cannot understand them. <clears throat> Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and here Paul is speaking of the Jews in general. <clears throat> Verse 14. Paul says, Their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who, or glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. So you might say that these unbelievers are doubly blind. They are blind in their nature, and they are blinded by Satan, this God of, the God of this world. But we have some hope. <clears throat> Verse 16, back to chapter 3. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the Holy Spirit can take that veil away, can 
give sight to those blind eyes, those doubly blind eyes, the ones that can't see because of their nature and because of the God of this world blinding them. And God can reveal his truth to them. So unbelievers need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand what's in God's word. But believers need it as well, don't we? We don't just get a shot of the Holy Spirit when we're born again and then never need him again. Look at Psalm 119. And listen to how the psalmist here again and again asks God to help him understand his word. Psalm 119, verse 12. We'll just name a few here. We don't have time to go through the whole psalm here. Psalm 119, verse 12 says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Now, do you think that the man who wrote this Psalm 119 knew his statutes to some extent, had studied them? He obviously had, but he still says, God, teach me your statutes. Down to verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. So again, this man who had studied God's law, who knew God's law, still needed God to open his eyes to behold even more wonderful things from his law. Verse 33, down to verse 38. And and listen to the the sort of prayer here we have in this, asking God to do a work in him. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. So he prays for this inclination to God's word, the understanding of God's word, teach me the way of your statutes. And he also asks for help to walk according to God's commandments, verse 35. So whether it's before, during, after, the, the, the desire for God's word, the understanding of God's word, the application of God's word, and all those things, the psalmist here knows that God himself must do that work in us. One other passage, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a a prayer of Paul about the Ephesians, and this is good for us to pray for ourselves. And Paul says he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of of his inheritance in the saints. And so when you are, as James says, you're lacking wisdom, you ask of God. This is Paul asking of God wisdom for the Ephesians. God, give me a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. God, I my, my hope of your calling is, is very weak right now, and I, I feel so poor and, and desperate. But God, let me know what is the hope of your calling from your word. And let me understand the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. Verse 19. So when we're weak, when we're feeling hopeless or less than hopeful anyway, when we are feeling 
foolish or we're feeling ignorant, we're, we're feeling like we don't understand God, we can pray this prayer in Ephesians 1 and ask that God will reveal himself to us in his word. But having said all this, this illumination doesn't come apart from diligent labor. We don't just put the Bible under our pillow at night and sleep on it, and hopefully it will just through osmosis get into our heads. Second Timothy 2.15 says this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So Timothy, who had learned at the feet of Paul for many years, had traveled with him, knew him well, had heard Paul preach many times, he still wasn't done. He had to be diligent every day to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We have the word of truth, especially those who teach it, want to make sure we handle it accurately. We, we understand it properly and teach it properly. But it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen rolling out of bed on Sunday morning and opening to a random spot and, and just preaching through it. Timothy doesn't just get himself in some state where the Spirit would just mystically speak through him. But he was to do the hard work to understand and explain the text. And God would use that by his Spirit to work in the hearts of his people. Well, let's just close with a few thoughts. First of all, thank God for the fact that he has spoken so clearly to us. John MacArthur said this, God gave us a book, and in that book he spoke, and what he said is exactly what he wanted to say, and he desired to say it in a way that we would understand it, because we are accountable for it. God has spoken, and he has not mumbled, and he has spoken clearly, and he has spoken precisely and exactly and directly to the matters that concern him and concern us. So we thank God for the fact that he has spoken clearly to us. Second of all, take advantage of the clarity of Scripture and prayerfully study it. And we have an amazing opportunity today to understand the Bible more than any believers in history, really. We have been so blessed to have any number of our own personal copies of the Scripture in our own language. I can pull up, in a few seconds, dozens of of, uh, translations of the Scriptures in my own language, other languages too, and commentaries in the palm of my hand to help me understand those things. And when something isn't clear to us, it's often relatively easy to find the answer, but so often we are just content to not understand than to really dig in and help, and help ask for God's help to understand these things. So we, we need to take advantage of this. They say familiarity brings, breeds contempt. Uh, that can happen with the Scriptures as well. We have it every day. We can always look at it, but it's easy to set it aside for another time. I think of the Bereans, remember those who heard Paul preach, and they were noble. Why? They, they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Paul said, the scriptures teach of this Messiah who's coming, his name is Jesus Christ. The Bereans said, well, <clears throat> we hear you, Paul. Let's look in the scriptures to see what that says. Well, did the Bereans have individual pocket Bibles? They probably had one Bible for their synagogue, maybe one Bible or, or copy of the, the Old Testament scriptures in their in their city, maybe maybe a few. They didn't have a lot, so they would probably gather together as, as a church and go through the Old Testament and see what Paul had said and see, was Paul quoting it accurately? Was Paul understanding it properly? And we, on the other hand, have so much and we often give so little. And I include myself in that. I'm not just pointing fingers at all of you. A third point, after 
thanking God and taking advantage of our opportunities is to use proper methods of biblical interpretation. And we've talked about that in the past. We don't have time to talk about it in detail right now. But just to mention one important principle that's relevant to the topic of today. If I read a topic or a portion of Scripture that's unclear, often reading another portion of Scripture will illuminate that difficult portion. So try to understand the unclear with the help of the clear and not the other way around. Some people try and take what's clear and muddy it with the unclear. Now instead take what's unclear and use the clear to help you understand it better. Another important point. Don't be worried about recommending the Bible to unbelievers. I'm afraid that some Christians think that they need to ease into an actual Bible because the Bible itself may be too difficult or too offensive. But encourage unbelievers to read the Bible. And Now you may want to direct them to a few pertinent passages and be ready to answer questions, but it's the scriptures that are able by the work of the Spirit to make them wise to salvation. We need to believe what 2 Timothy 3.15 says. The scriptures can make you wise to salvation. Let me close with an analogy. Imagine you had a house with an unobstructed view of Mount Rainier, and you got a perfectly clear piece of glass and set it into the wall of the house and polished it until it had no dirt or smudges, and then you invited people over to see the beautiful view. Some might decline, claiming to be too busy. Some might mock, saying that there are better things to do than look at mountains. Others will refuse because they've heard that Mount Rainier is not nearly so grand and beautiful as Himalayas. Of those that did come to your house, some might decide they'd rather sit in front of your television or catch up on their Facebook posting or whatever than see the view. A few might look briefly at the mountain and wonder, but then say, it's so big I can never understand it all, so why bother continuing to look at it? Others would prefer to look at the view through their own glasses, which have distortions and colors that make the mountain look fuzzy and blue instead of clear and white. And then a final few would look at the mountain and be enthralled with its majesty. And they would pull up a chair so that they could sit hour after hour and examine the mountain in detail. We read earlier in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 of the veil that lies over the heart of those who don't know Christ. And in the middle of that passage, we see the following verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So let's be the kind of people who ask God for clear eyes to see the beauties in his holy word and search for them diligently, especially the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might be transformed by the Spirit to reflect the glory of Christ more day by day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and I confess for myself I don't take advantage of the opportunity I have as much as I should to to dig into your word, to to meditate on it, to pray over it, to think deeply about it, even to consult other men and women of God in the past who've, who have more wisdom than I do to compare Scripture with Scripture, all the things that I could be doing to fully mine the riches of your word that I I don't do. And forgive me for that. Forgive all of us for that. Help us to be more diligent in the days to come. Your word is clear. We thank you for that. And where it's not clear, give us understanding, whether it be our own sin, whether it be our own traditions, our own laziness, our own misconceptions. Help those to be cleared away as we seek to understand as perfectly as we might on this earth, 
what you are trying to teach us in your word. And most of all, make your son more visible, more glorious to us in your word. Help us to understand him more and more. May we, as those with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glories of Christ to be transformed by those glories by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.